Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast, where you'll find fresh messages uploaded weekly. Pathway Church is a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. We hope that what you hear today will help you to take one step closer to Jesus. Thanks so much for joining us, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe. And uh, today I want, to, I want to read a passage of scripture that I've been staring at. Um, I don't know if you ever stare at something, but sometimes you stare at something long enough, you start to see things. And I've been staring at this passage of scripture for a few weeks. Um, I, I really felt like this was the passage that I was supposed to preach on. And, and as you're going to see, it's not really a preacher's passage. Uh, you're all wondering what it is. We're going to read it. But uh, essentially, when you look at this, it's, it's like the author is telling us about something that happened. And I, as I studied it and looked at it, I thought, Why? Why is this here? Let's read it together, and then, and then we'll take a look at it a little closer. It's found in John's Gospel, chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, I'd like to tell you that that's an ancient Jewish custom. It was a normal thing to do. It wasn't. That was just weird. I'm just throwing that out there. We'll come back to it. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, it's a significant amount of money, and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas was the disciple who was the treasurer for the team. And the text is telling us that he would steal and pilfer money from the, from the ministry fund. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it, the rest of this expensive ointment, for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. As I stared at this text, I mean, again, John is one of the disciples of Jesus. Later in his life, he would have sat down with pen and paper and written about the account of what he saw and heard with Jesus. Now, John had been with Jesus for at least three years. You can imagine spending three years with Jesus, how many stories you would have. And if you read through his gospel, you find these incredible sermons that Jesus taught, these truths and parables and miracles he worked. And for some reason, John spends all of this time in these eight verses explaining what happened at a dinner. John and Jesus and his crew had had many, many meals with many, many people, and for some reason, this moment finds its way into his gospel. I, I'm staring at it, trying to figure out why. Why? Jesus doesn't teach any incredible new material here. There's no healings, no fantastic miracles. It's just like these interactions with a few people at a, at a meal together, and I'm, I'm wondering, why, why is John putting this in here? And so as we go back to the first verse, let me give you a bit of the backdrop, and then I think we're going to discover uh, what's underlying in the text. John chapter 12, again, beginning in verse 1, we'll circle back, and just, we're just going to walk through just step by step. It says that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, 
where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. So a lot of details here. If you don't know the story and you don't know Jewish history, Passover is a, an annual feast that was, was celebrated and remembered in those days. And to this day, if you're a devout Jew, you celebrate Passover. It's the time when you, when you remember how God led the nation of Israel out of bondage and into freedom. It's a big deal. And Jesus is coming and he had celebrated other Passovers. And now he's come to this village of Bethany six days before this big Passover feast. Now, what they didn't know and what we know because hindsight is amazing is that Jesus is coming for his very last meal with his friends. They think the future is bright. Jesus is coming to die. He is coming to say goodbye to some of his closest friends in this moment. And I think this is partly why in the moment they were having dinner and some weird stuff happens and then they kind of move on. But as John later on down the road reflects back on this moment, he recognizes, like Ken said during the welcome, this is a moment we need to pay attention to. Something special was happening. Jesus, again, they're trying to honor Jesus with this special meal, but he's actually honoring them by coming. You see, it tells us that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. This was actually no small feat, all right? Uh, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. He had spent time with Lazarus and his family. And then Jesus has gone on. He's traveling around doing ministry. And Lazarus gets sick. And he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. And these loving sisters send word to Jesus to say, Lazarus, your friend is sick. Would you come? We know you can heal him. And so, and so they send a message and they ask him to come. When Jesus receives the message, he says, it's all going to be fine. And he continues on his way. He just ignores the request. And he ignores the request. And finally, he heads to Bethany, the town where Lazarus and his sisters lived. And by the time he arrives, Lazarus is already dead. He's been dead for four days. The town has mourned his passing. In those days, people would come and see the body and weep together. And then the sisters had, had embalmed his body and wrapped him in cloth. And they put him in a stone tomb and they had sealed it up. It says the body was stinking. So he's not just kind of dead, not near, he's not mostly dead, he's dead, dead. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, he's dead. And Jesus shows up on the scene and they're all like, oh Jesus, if you had been here, you could have done something. And Jesus says, you know what, take me to the tomb. Roll the stone away. And Jesus says, Lazarus, he calls his name, he says, come forth. And, and just like a, like a horror movie, I mean, Lazarus come walking up, wrap, get me out of these things, he's wrapped and he comes back to life. Now, some of you may be going, well, that, well that's kind of cool. And yeah, somebody just embellished the story. But here's what the scriptures tell us in multiple gospels, that this was such a big deal because this event was so public. It wasn't like a couple people saw this. Like the village came out and people saw a man who they knew, they had known since the time he was little, had died. They saw his body. They saw him buried in a stone tomb. And now he's walking around with them like everything's fine. It's kind of a big deal. The whole town is electric. People are traveling from other places in Israel to come and meet Lazarus. They're like, did you see a light at the end of the tunnel? I don't know if they asked that, but they, everyone wanted to meet Lazarus. So much so that word got to Jerusalem, the capital city is nearby. And the, the religious leaders who were already worried about Jesus stealing their, their thunder... Jesus, the people are turning to Jesus instead of the religious leaders. They're nervous about Jesus. And when they hear about this guy, Lazarus, they decide in that moment that they are going to kill Jesus. 
We have got to stop this guy. And so because of this miracle with Lazarus, Jesus actually has to retreat to a distant place to preserve his own life. And now, six days before the Passover feast, Jesus comes back into town knowing they're after him, and he comes to spend a meal with his friend Lazarus and his sisters. This is, this is pretty cool. He continues to say this, so they, they gave a dinner for him. They, they thought they were doing this to honor Jesus, but in retrospect, when they would look back, they would say, Jesus came out of hiding to spend one last meal with us before he would lay down his life for us. It was, it was them that were being honored in this moment. And of course, we know all this in hindsight. We can look back and we know the rest of the story. They did not. And so my, my message title today is um, Lessons with Lazarus. And uh, in, this, in this story, I find uh, four characters interacting with Jesus. And, and I think that each of them represents four character traits that God would have us to have as Christians. And also there are four lessons underlying that I want to draw out of this text. I stared at this a long time. It took a while, but if you dig long enough, sometimes you find some gold. And so the first character that I want to point you to is found in verse uh, 2. John records this as he begins to talk about this meal. He says, Martha served. I'm going to stop there because that's not insignificant. Martha represents for us the significance or the importance of serving other people. And the, the underlying lesson is simply this, that ordinary service leads to extraordinary moments. Now, if I had gone to a dinner where a woman poured a $1,000 bottle of perfume on some guy's feet and washed his feet with her hair, and I was going to tell the story of what happened on that occasion, I would start there, wouldn't you? If I came home, my wife was like, how was the meeting? Well, um, this lady showed up. It was so weird. We were all uncomfortable. The air, it was so thick, you cut it with a knife. It was awkward. She poured perfume on his feet and washed his feet with her hair. We're all just like, should we be here? Like, that's the way I would tell the story. Of course, John is, is looking back after lots of time. And as he writes this, instead of starting with this extravagant act that Mary does, he says, Martha served. I find that fascinating, don't you? It's like, Martha served. In other words, if Martha hadn't uh, made the soup, rolled the wraps, laid out the china, vacuumed the floor, and we know she probably didn't do those things, they didn't have vacuums, but you get what I mean. She's sweeping and dusting, and she's preparing the space for Jesus to come. And she prepares the meal for the people to eat. And through her practical, hands-on service, she is literally creating the opportunity for a moment with Jesus. That would be remembered for thousands of years. I think sometimes we over-spiritualize things. And and we go spiritual and then these little things don't matter. Every little act of service matters. It matters so much. In other words, John, as he says, Martha served is essentially saying, no Martha, no moment. Sometimes we're literally serving others and just creating an atmosphere, creating a place, creating a moment for someone to experience God. Did you know that, I mean, this is a moment. You guys are all looking at me. I'm under lights and I'm preaching a sermon, but three and a half hours ago, 6.30 in the morning, there were people rolling bins down the hall, setting up chairs, plugging in cables, 
probably wondering, what am I doing here at 6.30 on a Sunday morning? Why am I here? Why? Because every little act of service matters. And little practical acts of service actually create a platform for incredible moments. This is true in your family. Doing laundry, driving your kids. You never know when a special moment is coming, but it's those practical aspects of service to others. This morning, I think Sunday morning is a special moment, but there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 volunteers that make this moment possible. It's incredible. Martha served. She served. Did you know the Christian faith is actually built on practical service? Like Jesus says, turns to his disciples on one occasion, and he says, whoever wants to be the greatest among you must become the servant of all. He's like, this isn't just some fancy thing you say. This is true. If you want to be the greatest, you must become a servant. Perhaps this is why John, in retrospect, writes, first, Mary served. Martha served. I did that wrong in the first service, too. Martha served. Let's get it right, okay? Martha served, and she is recognized first for it. It's incredible. I I said this in the first service. I'll say it again. Jesus is not down with Downton Abbey. (laughs) That's what my wife said. Um, Some of you uh, watch Downton Abbey, like the show. Honestly, I watched the first three seasons, and then my favorite character, they killed him off. And um, so those that haven't watched it yet, spoiler alert. Um, (laughs) But what, what, if you haven't seen the show, the, the, the show really just chronicles a, a family. And this is an upper-class, wealthy family, Lord Grantham and his family. They live in this castle. And they are the upper echelon socialite elites. And in the house, they have all of the, the help, right? They got, the, they got the, uh, the butlers, and they got the maids, and the groundskeepers. And so there's this, there's this distinct classification between the, the family, Lord Grantham and his family, and the, the help. And I just say, don't overlook the help. Because this whole class system, this whole, like, I'm so important, and you serve me. Hey, would somebody put on my shirt? I tried that once. It didn't work. Nobody helped me. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, no, no, he's, he's not into that. Jesus literally, in, with his disciples, the king of kings, the creator of the universe, disrobes himself and washes the feet of his disciples as an example. There's there's just none of this, I'm here, you're there. It is service. Practical service is at the heart of the Christian faith. Serving one another prepares the way for what God wants to do in our lives and, and also in this church. So I hope, I hope that like Martha, we would be willing to serve one another and uh, to humble ourselves in that way. So Martha teaches us the value of service. And then next it says, Martha served, and we're going to focus now on Lazarus, okay? Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, as I was outlining this message, Lazarus wasn't actually one of the key figures I wanted to focus on, and, and because he doesn't do anything. He's just there. He's literally, it's just like Lazarus was there. Lazarus is sitting with Jesus. I'm like, what did he do? How did he exemplify some character trait that we're to model? Not there. So here's what I wrote down. Lazarus teaches us the value of our story. I'll explain that. The lesson to be learned is this. The best way to share your faith is to share your story. You see, Lazarus didn't say or do anything, but his presence there said enough. It was his story that was drawing attention to Jesus. 
And, and I say this, the best way to share your faith is to share your story. Because when I, was a, when I was a teenager, I would go to church and they would tell me, you know, hey, you need to go to school and you need to share your faith with your friends. And I'm like, how? That's awkward. They don't care. I don't know what to say. And I thought to myself, I don't have the education, you know. I don't know what Greek word Paul used. I don't know Romans Road or any other roads. I, I don't have any gospel tracts, you know, how to get to heaven from the Kawarthas. Those are great. I didn't have that. You know, I, and they were just like, share your faith. I'm like, well, that's weird. Like, hey, do you know Jesus? That's a great way to start a conversation. <laughs> just goes silent after that, trust me. And, and so, you know, I'm just like, how do I do this? And then I thought, well, I don't have all my questions answered. So what if somebody asks me a hard question? Like, I've always wondered, like, how did Noah and his sons build this massive ship with ancient tools? I don't know. What kind of fish swallowed Jonah, and how did he stay alive in there? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't have the answers. So certainly I can't share my faith with someone else because I don't have all the answers, and I don't know the Greek and the Hebrew. So, so what am I supposed to do with all of this? And then I learned along the way that the best way to share your faith is to share your story. Just like Lazarus. Just be like, I'm with Jesus. <laughs> like, let me tell you what he did. I once was dead. I once was lost. Now I'm found. Something's happened. There's new life in me. I can't explain it. I can't even point you to a verse, but I know I have hope and I didn't have hope before. I know I'm forgiven and I know that I've been washed clean and I I can't explain it, but I know what's happened to me. Something's changed. And so you just tell your story. That's all you got to do. And it's the most powerful way to share your faith is simply just to share your story. Lazarus just sitting there like, I'm with that guy. I shouldn't be here. Some of you shouldn't be here today. The fact that you're here is enough. Say no more. You're sitting in church and you're pursuing him. So sharing your story is one of the most incredible ways to share your faith. Lazarus demonstrates the value of our story. The third character that we find in the text is found in verse 3 is Mary. We finally get to Mary. She's kind of the star of the show. Martha's servant and Mary comes and upstages her sister. But Mary, it says, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, it would be normal in those days if you had a special guest come to your house to, to put some drops of oil on their head, to anoint their head in honor of this guest, and to have a servant wash their feet. These would be hospitality, general hospitality rules. Um, Mary goes all out, and she doesn't even go near his head because she doesn't feel worthy, and she goes right to his feet, and she's dumping super expensive perfume, okay? And she's anointing his feet, and she's taking her hair. Can you just imagine this? And she's kind of washing his feet with her hair. This is a, a very extravagant act of love and appreciation that I don't think made sense then. And it certainly doesn't make sense today. But it's clear that Mary loves Jesus and appreciates him. Mary teaches us the significance of worship. Now, when I say worship, if you're not from a church background, you may be thinking worship, like, ooh, like worshiping idols or like, what is worship? You put on a robe and chant things. No, when we use the word worship, we're talking really about elevating something or someone. So without knowing it, we're all worshiping stuff. 
We worship our possessions, we worship our children, we worship our careers, we worship our favorite sports teams. If we're not careful, we just naturally start lifting things up that we value. And Mary is going to lift up and value Jesus. This is, this is remarkable because if we kind of do a cursory reading of the text, we, we find that it's like, oh, Lazarus was there, and Lazarus is with Jesus. All the attention's on Lazarus. As you might imagine, he shouldn't be there. And everyone's like, Lazarus, it's such a miracle. Look, he's sitting with Jesus. Jesus brought him back to life. Mary comes in the room. Remember, this is her brother. And she's not like, ooh, Lazarus. She literally takes everyone's attention and focus and turns it where it ought to be onto Jesus. Because it's a miracle her brother's there. She is so thankful that he is there. But she is so appreciative of Christ, that she turns her attention, her gaze, her focus, and, and in doing so, in worshiping Jesus, she brings all the attention off of Lazarus on to Jesus. The lesson here is that worship has the power to shift your perspective and your priorities. One of the reasons we come together and gather like this on a Sunday is so that we can redirect our priorities, so that we can realign our thinking as we're singing those songs like we sang earlier about how good God is and His character and what He's done for us, we're focusing on Him and we're singing those songs and we're lifting Him up, everything else begins to fall away. It's an alignment. That's why we do the things we do. It's why we, we break bread and we remember the Lord's Supper because it reminds us of His sacrifice and we, we open up the Scriptures because it reminds us of the things He taught us and, and we're aligning and worshiping Him together here in this place. We don't sing songs at church just to fill time, right? It's not just a way to fill the hour. It's, it's an opportunity for us to engage like Mary did in honoring and lifting up our God and Savior. And in doing so, it aligns our heart and our thoughts for the entire week. And so some of you, you know, you may come to church and just sit and like, you know, barely singing or just kind of standing there awkwardly, you know, um, Pastor, I'm just not an expressive person. I just like to stand. My middle name's Rigamortis. You didn't know this, but it is. And, uh, and people say, oh, I'm just not expressive. And then you see them at a sports game, you know, or they're, you know, they're doing it, and it's like, ah, and they're like chanting and yelling at the refs. And it's like, where's the passion like that? Bring it. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'm not an expressive person until you slam your fingers in the door. <laughs> Everyone around's like, I didn't know you knew those words. Um, it's amazing when you feel something deeply how you can't help but express it and my hope is that we could take our cue from Mary and even though we might look silly sometimes that we would find ways to express our love and appreciation for Christ and as we do so when we lift him up man all the troubles of our lives and the, the things we're dealing with will start to fade into the distance when our eyes are upon him uh, Mary teaches us the significance of worship so we got Martha teaching us the, about service We have Lazarus who teaches us the value of our story, and now Mary teaches us a thing or two about worship. And we land on our fourth suspect, our fourth character, and his name is Judas. His name is Judas Iscariot. The word Iscariot in the translation means bag carrier. He he was really called that because he was the Judas who carried the money for the team. He was their treasurer, their bookkeeper, whatever you want to call him. One of his disciples, he was one of the 12 that were closest to Jesus, that Jesus had hand-chosen. And of course, the text tells us that he was about to betray Jesus. 
Now remember, the people who were in this moment did not know that. We know that. That's why none of us named our child Judas. And if you did, it's really awkward right now. But <laughs> Judas, Judas is kind of known as this, this, this betrayer and this thief, right? So that, that name is kind of like nobody uses it anymore. Okay? And so we know that, but they didn't know that. He was one of Jesus' elect few. He was one of the good guys. And he said to everyone in the room, why was this ointment, which is very valuable, not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This makes a lot of sense. So Judas is actually going to teach us about the power of motives. Motives. Because he's saying the right things, but the motives behind it are not correct. The lesson here is simply this, that hidden motives will not stay hidden forever. I would add this point. Be careful how you judge other people based on what you see. Because let's be honest, if you and I were in the room that day and we saw Mary crying and rubbing her hair all over Jesus' feet, wasting, or at least it would appear to be wasting expensive perfume, most of us would be looking at that going, this is inappropriate. That's not how we worship here. That's too far. You're making us and everyone uncomfortable. Mary, this is borderline flirtatious. You shouldn't be touching the master. Like, there are so many things that would be going through our minds if somebody did that in this room today. Would you not agree? And no doubt the people that were there were looking at Mary going, oh, you crossed the line. And Judas stands up, and he, he, he makes a lot of sense. Jesus, this is wasteful. Do you know how much that perfume costs? It could be sold, and the money should be given to the poor. Is it good to think about the poor and give to them? Absolutely. Was Jesus for it? Absolutely. And yet we discover something about his, about his motives. But you couldn't see the motives in that moment, could you? I mean, if somebody stood up and did that, I mean, they were probably sitting in the room like, put Judas on the board of directors. He is fiscally responsible. He loves the poor. But motives aren't seen in the moment. Motives can be hidden. You know this. I know this. We do it all the time. Motives lie under the surface. They're the why behind what we do. But here's the lesson. The lesson is that our motives will never stay hidden forever. They're always exposed. Always exposed. Jesus went so far to say that anything that is hidden will be brought to light. Wow. Okay, that's heavy. So we have Mary, who's looking ridiculous. We have Judas, who looks like, you know, the responsible one. But underlying these actions that they are taking, there are these motives. Let me share what they are. They could be, they could be said in the form of a question. Mary, the question that's driving her action is this question. What can I give? Jesus gave me back my brother. Jesus honored me. Jesus allowed Mary to sit at his feet and listen to his teaching. Did you know that in that day... Women were not allowed to learn with men like that. Jesus honored women in a time when women were not honored. Jesus brought her brother back to life. Jesus was a friend to the family. She is like, what do I have? What do I have? I've got, this is the most valuable thing I have. And she's like, I just don't even know what to do with it. I was just poured on his feet. This makes sense. <laughs> Didn't matter. She's saying, what do I have that I can give to him? And that's what she does. Judas, of course, is asking a very different question. What can I get? Now, I've talked a lot about money over the last six weeks. I'm not even going to talk about money. Let's just talk about the motives of the heart. When it comes to relationships, if you're in a relationship with anybody, but let's pick on marriage, if you're in a marriage and you enter into that marriage asking the question, what can I get? 
You may be able to hide it for a while. You might be able to play house for a while. But eventually, motives are always revealed. You can, you can be out in public at your place of employment and everyone can think you're an amazing husband, wife, mother, father, friend. But the people who know you best, it's, it's revealed. It comes out. Motives are always revealed. And so, and so whether it's in relationships or whether it's work, you can go to work every day and you can ask either one of those questions too. Did you know that? You can go to your work, wherever you work tomorrow, and you can walk through the doors and go, what can I get? And you can work hard, and everyone's noticing you, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Or you can do the very same physical work, but you're asking a very different question inside, saying, what can I give? How can I make my boss money? How can I make my team look better? How can I support what this organization is doing? It's a very, and nobody sees it, but here's the trick. It's always revealed in time. It always is. And that's the lesson we learned from Judas, because in that moment, nobody knew he was a thief. But a week later, when he sells out the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver, it becomes clear to everybody. And that's what happens. The text continues, really showing us that hidden motives are always exposed. He says this in verse 6. He said this, Judas, not because he cared about the poor. Again, remember, they didn't know this in the moment. You never do. Be careful how quickly you judge people because sometimes what you think is obvious is not obvious. But because he was a thief... And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And here's the final couple of verses. Jesus said, leave her alone. He sees through it all and sees the motive of Mary's heart. Leave her alone, he says, that she may keep the rest of that ointment for the day of my burial. Nobody knew that within a week she would be applying that to his lifeless corpse. Nobody knew but Jesus. And he says, she's right on the money. For the poor you always have with me. But you do not always have me. If motives are revealed, as we're thinking about our faith, as we're thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, we've, we've learned some lessons already, that it means that we will be a servant to others. It means that we will share our story generously. It means that we will, um, that we will worship with our whole heart. And the fourth part is that we will live authentically. Do you know throughout the New Testament, it talks about confessing your sin. What's that mean? It means, hey, if the stuff that's going wrong in here is going to be exposed anyway, Jesus says, why don't you expose it now? Why not, instead of spending all of your energy hiding and pushing all of that junk down, why don't you expose it and let me address it? Powerful. That's why one of the core values at our church is authenticity. I don't want perfect people in our church. I want people who can take off the mask. Warts and all. And I'm not talking about that thing you put on in the morning, the makeup and the fake eyelashes or whatever you're doing. You know, spray on hair or what? It's okay to paint the barn. I'm just talking about, I'm talking about the mask because just like every morning we brush our hair and we put our clothes and we check in the mirror, we, we manage our image very closely, don't we? What do people think of me? How can I present myself in the best light? How can I show everyone my good side and hide that side of me that I'm not really so proud of. Because inside of every single one of us, there's a Mary and a Judas battling it out. Our heart is going, I want to I be generous. I want to ask, what can I give? But there's this selfish humanity in us that goes, what can I get out of this situation? And that battle rages in the home, and it rages at work, and it rages in your relationship. And, and the, the gospel teaches us that if we'll expose 
hidden motives, if we'll allow God's light to shine on it, if we will repent, if we will acknowledge what's there and allow him to shine his light in, that he will transform us and work us from the inside to the outside. Authenticity is a powerful, powerful thing. So I guess here's what I'm saying. As I look at these four characters and these four lessons, I'm going, man, could we be a church? Could we be a people like that who serve one another, who, who share our story with those we meet? Not, not like, hey, do you know Jesus? Let me tell you how you get to heaven. But to say, here's what he has done for me. Let me tell you that. That we would be people who would worship with our whole heart and that we would be people who live authentically. If you happen to leave this church and go to some other church, a win for me would be that pastor calling me like, what are you doing with people over there? They serve and they're generous and, and their motives are amazing and they, they worship like no other. I'm like, awesome. They're Christians. That's the goal. And so as we look at the text, man, it is so amazing to me as I look back just to see how through these characters and through this moment that John records, we see Martha and Lazarus and Mary and Judas, and we learn the values of serving others, sharing our story, worshiping God, and living authentically together. That's my prayer, our goal for us as a church and individually. Can we pray together? Thanks for listening to the Pathway Church Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us, go to our website, pathwaylife.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. See you next week.